Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. John Wick is a man of focus. I know, I've heard the story, sir. Pencil! Who would have do that? I can assure you that the stories you hear about this man, if nothing else, has been watered down. be Keanu Reeves on the other end of that phone call in John Wick 2, but it's definitely Peter Stomar ferociously facing off against Reeves in the movie. But more about that coming up, as the Swedish actor who started out directed by Ingmar Bergman as a teenager laments all the bullies he's been cast to play since then, and the kinder, gentler character he's up to these days. But first... Suspended for life. What's up with Pacifica's KPFK and WPFW host Garland Nixon, just sent into permanent exile by the new Twitter gatekeeper Elon Musk? The political analyst, righteous whistleblower, and self-described artistic version of a talking head is our guest as he searches for answers following his satirical Twitter post of U.S. Secretary of State Blinken's imperialist to-do list. And what all of this has to do with the deep state, the Pentagon, the political establishment, expropriation, and disappearance, both real and linguistically, of the actual left, and Garland Nixon's ghost. Hello, Garland Nixon, and welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me. Now, you're finding yourself suspended for life from Twitter. What can you say about what happened to you, and who or what entities do you think are behind it? Well, basically what happened was, you know, I uh, am a, uh, you know, I don't know if you'd call me a pundit. I consider myself a political analyst. And so, um, and I'm a creative-minded person. So rather than just, you know, analyze and talk about politics, I like to use analogies. I like to use comedy. I like to use satire and parody because I'm a creative kind of the artistic version of a talking head, right? Mm -hmm. So quite often in on Twitter, I do um, satire and parody. I would do these uh, tweets that said breaking news, and then there'd be some satire or parody in there. So I did one that was a um, – and oftentimes being an anti-imperialist, an anti-war person, a really pro-peace and, and, and justice and fairness, I will say things about the U.S. foreign policy that I believe are unjust. So I did a to-do list for Secretary of State Tony Blinken, which included like blowing up the um, – the Nord Stream pipeline and overthrowing governments and 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 I put strangled Palestinians, all kind of using a heavy, a dark comedy, a dark satire to um, voice my opposition to what I consider a, an aggressive, unjust, and, and violent foreign policy. Well. That was fairly, you know, I never, a week or two went by, and it was just another one of my mini, uh, uh, you know, comedic, uh, uh, dark satire type tweets. And I got a notice one morning that says, you're suspended from Twitter because of this tweet. It's hateful conduct. So it said, but you can appeal. I clicked on the appeal, and immediately it said something went wrong. I got an email that said, you're suspended for life, and if you start another account, that will be shut down. Keeping in mind, it was parody, number one. And number two, it was pushing back against U.S. foreign policy. And so that's kind of what – that's the story of how I got 
um, how I got uh, suspended. Then I actually, I said, well, let me just try this out. I started another account. My name's Garland Nixon. So I started another account and I called it Garland Nixon's Ghost. <laughs> that went for about a week and then that got suspended too. And who do you think is behind this? Well, let me add a couple of one one quick thing that I did find out. Dan Cohen, who is a good friend and a and a great um, journalist, he's doing a lot of work in a documentary on Haiti right now. He did some investigative journalism, which is what journalism, which is what he does, and he found that these NAFO, which is the North Atlantic Fellows Association, it is found it is, it is uh, research has found that it is a an operation that's run by either the Pentagon and or U.S. intelligence agencies to counter people who are in opposition to the U.S.'s policy on Ukraine. So apparently these um, – there's a lot of trolls, and they just do various attacks. Anybody who says something about Ukraine that they don't like, they will attack them. And I mean viciously, viciously in ways that actually are hateful conduct, and I've had it happen with me time and time again. Well, apparently hundreds of these had all come together and filed a complaint against me for hateful conduct. They got a response from Twitter that said, we received your complaint against Garland Nixon. We investigated it, and he's been suspended for life. So to make matters worse, a online troll operation that has been connected directly to the United States government seems to have been significantly responsible for me getting suspended for life. Now, you've spoken in your defense that satire is protected speech, but is it really? Look at the fate of a number of silenced or outlawed comics, and let's not forget the slapper at the Oscars, Will Smith. Well, keep in mind when we're talking, and here's the issue. When we're talking about free speech protections, what you have to show is that it was the government, because you do not have the same um, constitutional protections when it comes to a private company. And this is where this whole thing becomes hairy. Because, as you, I'm sure you know, comedy, satire, even being wrong is, is specifically protected under the First Amendment, under through, through you know, various judicial precedents. So, um, because of course, and this is the way I always put it, you don't need to protect the speech of somebody that stands on the corner waving a flag saying America is wonderful. But you need to protect unpopular speech for somebody who wants to burn a flag or say, I don't like what America is doing. So specifically, the First Amendment is there to protect unpopular speech or speech that is critical of the status quo of the U.S. government, et cetera. So what, what my argument here is that since – and this is, I think, the, in many cases – since a – the NAFO trolls, which has been proven to be a government-funded and government-run operation, was behind this. So it was nothing but a government proxy. So the U.S. government is doing an end around the Constitution by using a proxies online, whether it's uh, uh, social media or other large tech companies, going through this proxy. We also found here we found here recently that they were contacting directly contacting. Twitter about specific accounts and specific posts saying this has to go down or that has to go down. So the government has done an end around the Constitution by simply saying we will um, influence uh, online tech corporations to do our bidding, and that way we can use the excuse that the government isn't involved in, as you know, as the U.S. does in um, foreign policies so, policy so often, you use a proxy, and then you say, well, we weren't involved, therefore, the laws that would – and standards that would protect people from government intrusive behavior doesn't apply here. So my argument is, since the government was doing a proxy operation in, 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 on um, Twitter, the standards of the First Amendment should be applied. And before the arrival of Musk presiding over Twitter, there was another similar but different draconian operation or ploy going on, one going after the right wing, but in the case of the left, obliterating the left by pretending they don't exist, with establishment liberals and Democrats being designated as the left instead, or even referred to ludicrously by conservatives as the far left. What are your thoughts about that? That is a very important question, and here are my thoughts on that. The, one of the problems that we have in America is this. What do you mean when you say left? You know, we use a word. Words are, are nothing but sounds and symbols. When you use that word left, 
or that sound, what are you referring to, right? And now, traditionally, the left, you know, I grew up, I tell people, you know, my politics come from, you know, where I grew up. My father was a longshoreman. He was a member of the, you know, the ILA. He was a diehard, um, organized labor person. So my leftiness, as it were, comes from organized labor and from uh, unappreciate for the appreciation for the importance of workers having um, power, uh, you know, in relation to, you know, organized capital, power, uh, uh, you know, the bosses, the corporations. What has happened in America is left has been redefined to cultural issues. So now I can be, I can say, well, I hate socialists. I hate I am in favor of war. I'm in favor of the um, uh, conglomeration of corporate power. I'm opposed to organized labor. All the traditional economic class issues that define the left, I can say I oppose all of those. Now the cultural issues, LGBTQ, trans, things of that nature, I can now claim that that is what defines me as the left. Now, traditional left, if you look at the socialism and the Communist Party and things like that, we're in staunch opposition to racism and all the isms, right? But while they fought against those kinds of unfair treatment and injustices, their foundation, because the Communist Party and the Socialist Parties are the ones who integrated the, um, the unions, who pushed for union integration and marched with civil rights and all that kinds of stuff. So that left and what would be considered the far left back then was very much involved in anti-racism, anti-discrimination, et cetera. This new redefinition of the left says the economic class issues are unimportant. The left is now defined by specific cultural issues, and they'll make them real um, kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, cultural issues that are um, can be used as wedge and issues, can be used to clobber their friends, things of that nature. So I think that's the issue at hand, the redefinition of the left to cultural issues only as opposed to a foundation of economic class issues that are that, that are work in concert with cultural and discrimination, discrimination issues. And what seems to be new with Musk around is the erasing for the first time of long-established entities on Twitter, like Antifa just recently. So what do you think is going on? How would you say your case is different or even perhaps the same? Well, and, 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 and what we see here, and, and um, a lot of uh, Americans have to understand this, a lot of people who are opposed to the, uh, um, you know, the power elite, there is now, and there have always been, wars and, and warring factions within the elite ruling class. A lot of people who are, you know, very well-meaning just see the elite ruling class as this is a group of elite ruling class and they're all in concert. I'll give you an example. In my opinion, this is my opinion, there are two groups, in a, they're kind of fuzzy, but there's two groups when it comes to foreign policy and, and, and the ruling elite. One group wants war with Russia, one group war, wants war with China. What is it? The commodities, the oil people, the mining people, et cetera, look at Russia and say, Russia is loaded with commodities. We need to go to war and take those commodities. Then there's the industrial groups that look at China and say, holy moly, look at all that industry. They're taking over the industry. We need to go to war with, 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 um, with China to take the industry. And then there's people in between. But they say to us, it's a moral issue. Russia's evil, China's evil, whoever evil, evil, evil. They use the words evil, I believe, as cover stories, because what they, they, they really – and if you look at it historically, it's always been wars about natural resources. And I believe that's what it's about today, either industry or natural resources. And it's important to understand that while Elon Musk may have some opposition to some parts of the elite ruling class, he's still a member of the elite ruling class. And we're looking at the wars between various factions of the elite ruling class, none of them who have the working class in their best interest. And in terms of the quietly disappeared and erased of the left on Twitter, it's been reported that a number of those include Cubans and Venezuelans, Sandinistas in Nicaragua, and many communists and revolutionaries. What are your thoughts about that? 
And, and if you look at America, that is the history of America. You redefine the left out of existence. You push the left underground, and then you rhetorically create a new left. So now, if you notice, one of the things that happened. There are a lot of people who are clear lefties. They're, if you look at the foundation of their policies, they're lefties, and now they call them the far right. Jimmy Dore, Matt Taibbi, whoever, uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald, they're the far right. Well, how, if you look at the foundation of their policies and what they believe in, you know, Medicare for all and workers and, and um, the rights of uh, workers to organize and things, well, that's traditional left. But they critique the status quo from the left. Now, there are other people that critique the status quo from the right. So when you redefine the left out of position, I mean out of existence, you now have to say any critique of the status quo is the far right. And you can say far left, you, the, the Bidens of the world, the status quo of the world is perfectly happy being referred to as the far left because that assists, assists them in rhetorically redefining the left, the socialist, et cetera, out of existence. And since you have to rhetorically uh, redefine them out of existence, you also have to make them disappear off of social media. So they're not there. They don't exist. And now you can rhetorically redefine them out of existence. You can throw them off social media, and anybody who critiques you is now the far right. Hmm. Now, you were a cop for many years. How do you feel that affected you ideologically, both positively and negatively, and provided you with a unique analytical approach to what's going on in the world. Well, you know, I, here's the thing. I've always been a person that I'm not defined by, by, you know, I studied Zen. I'm not defined by my exterior. My politics have never changed. I grew up, my mom started a bus company, a school bus company. Let me just say this. When I was born, I was in abject poverty. I was born in third world poverty, right? In Maryland, no running water in the house, absolute third world poverty in America. So I got to see that. And in a black community, I saw other people in my in my economic circumstances, right? My mother started a school bus business that did extremely well. My father became a longshoreman. He did very well. And I went from abject poverty to living far better than a lot of other people in the black community. Not better than everybody, but in our community, we were doing very well. So I got a taste of all of it. At the same time, I got to learn about workers' rights. That's what defined me. When I went into became a law enforcement per person, I was defined as a human being. So the definition of who I was carried into law enforcement, and that is what determined um, how, with the, my course. So eventually I got involved with the American Civil Liberties Union. I, um, in fact, I was involved in lawsuits against the police department that I work for, for discrimination. I brought together and helped build a black officers association so we could um, uh, sue them for discrimination. So I was helping to create workers' organizations to fight against racism in the context of law enforcement. I got involved with the American Civil Liberties Union. I became a member of the Board of Directors for the state of Maryland. I eventually became a, a member of the National Board of Directors for the American Civil Liberties Union. I received awards from the ACLU for my work on police accountability. So my p p position is I was defined, and I took who I was into law enforcement, and I used that to try to make the law enforcement uh, community fairer and more just rather than, you know, let the law enforcement community define me. And what about police racism and brutality that you experienced? Well, I was already, growing up in a black community, I was well aware of it. I saw it. I understood it. So it was nothing new to me. It wasn't like I came into the law enforcement community. I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's racist people here. Who are there? Who would have ever thought? No. I came in there knowing what I was up against. And when I started, the, there was overt racism in the police department, and that was part of the culture of the police department. So I didn't feel that I was immediately accepted as part of the police community. I felt that even in the police community, black people and minorities and even women were outsiders. So, you know, again, I was already defined, and then I came into law enforcement, and I just felt that I was there to fight for justice the same as I was everywhere else. And where did you grow up? 
I grew up in um, Maryland. I grew up just outside of Baltimore in the suburbs, in a suburban kind of working class area, um, Pasadena, Glen Burnie, Maryland, near the bay. Um, grew up, you know, riding my bicycle down to the Chesapeake Bay every day to go swimming and fishing and crabbing. I had a fun life. And then as the economic situation in my family improved, I was able to do, you know, other things and travel and do things that I'd never dreamed that I'd be able to do um, in my youthful years. And I'd like to ask you, particularly with your analytical sleuth skills picked up as an investigator, who or what do you think is behind the latest development of that mysterious massive amount of letter bombs and packages sent to Ukrainian embassies across Europe, as well as to an army base in Spain, a weapons manufacturer, to the Vatican and to the U.S. as well, and containing blood, animal entrails, pig and cow eyes, and reportedly strange smells. I think that there are, um, it doesn't surprise me, there are now going to be groups who are very angry and feel very um, uh, motivated to act in increasingly desperate ways that they need to push back against things. You know, I'm a person who I disagree with any violence. I'm opposed to violence. But I understand, you know, having studied self-defense, that if somebody pushes me into a corner, that I have a right to defend myself, right? Now, I'm not saying that's the case here, not at all. But I'm saying it doesn't surprise me because of the level of violence that is being perpetrated now by the U.S. empire and its proxies worldwide. You know, they're, we're over here flying around South Korea doing imitations of attacking North Korea. We're flying around the Middle East doing imitations of attacking Iran. You know, I mean, the level of violence has been taken to a level that it doesn't surprise me that there would be violent pushback, um, or even if it's rhetorically or even if it's symbolically violent pushback. It doesn't surprise me. I don't think it serves a good purpose. But, you know, the, the people that are doing it aren't asking me for my, for, for my permission or, or for my, uh, you know, for my uh, uh, input. Mm. And any last word about what's happened to you with Twitter now and into the future? Well, you know, um, as a person who studies the philosophy of Zen, you know, we have a, a, a saying, you know, and that is, you know, there's not a grain of sand in the universe that can be in the wrong place. So as far as I'm concerned, as soon as I got suspended for life, I said, well, that's the best thing that could have possibly happened. And my, my justification and my reasoning is it happened. It has to be the best thing that could possibly happen. Since then, the um, discussion has broadened for this reason. Because Elon Musk said, look, I'm going to come in here and I'm all about free speech. And the discussion was, are you going to restore these accounts that were suspended unjustly? Once I was suspended and people were like, well, it's obvious a joke. And I mean, is this guy a threat? He's an ex-cop. He's, I, worked, I literally worked with the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force. I could go on and on. I worked all this kind of stuff, you know, with, with, uh, with the U.S. government on um, all kind of terrorism stuff, right? And um, which is a whole nother story I could do a show about. <laughs> but at any oh my God. But at any rate, um, I think that it exposed that, you know, under Twitter there are still third rails. And one you know, the third rails is a discussion of the Palestinians. The third rail is the discussion of U.S. aggressive um, militaristic foreign policy. And even though, you know, um, uh, Elon Musk claimed that he, the third rails were going to be different, there are certain third rails that, regardless of who's in power, must be adhered to. And, uh, you know, you've heard this a million times, meet, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Okay, thank you, Garland Nixon, for calling in. Well, thank you very much, and uh, so you keep up the good work, and everybody make sure you follow this show and listen to it all the time. <laughs> and you can catch Garland Nixon as well on his YouTube channel. John Savage. If you're if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Barry Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage, and uh, 
I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. So hang in there. All right. Coming up next on Arts Express, Peter Stomer is no stranger to playing scary characters in action movies, but he is, to his dismay, rarely given kinder, gentler portrayals. And the actor who has divided his time between making movies in his native Sweden and here is currently starring as a sensitive Swedish chef and featuring another rare occurrence, female elders in love in food and romance. Stomar will also revisit his impressive career starting out in Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander and being directed by Ingmar Bergman and followed by co-starring with the late Robin Williams in Awakenings in the Coen Brothers' Fargo and the Big Lebowski, Seinfeld, Armageddon, Spielberg's Minority Port, and as Albert Einstein in the World War II movie, Gift of Fire, and many more along with what he's up to once again as Lucifer in the upcoming Constantine II. Hello, Peter Stomar, and welcome to our show. Oh, thank you, Perry. Okay, great. What led you to be part of this film and to portray Henrik? I felt overwhelmed by being asked to do this part because it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of women it was the first time in Sweden and, you know, in history that we had three leads and they were women. And I was a supporting actor and the director and the writers are all women. So I was surrounded with all women for a couple of weeks. That's why I said yes, because it was just women, women. I love women. And uh, <laughs> it was just rare to see women, you know, hitting 60 to do a movie yeah. like this. Oh, it's usually younger women are coming up. Oh, age, yeah, you know? yeah. We've done the 40s. Now it's the 60s. We're going to move up to the 80s in a couple of years. Mm. And uh, But it's rare to see three women in the lead taking off. It's usually guys. It's usually guys who robs a bank. Now, you were just a teenager when you were in Fanny and Alexander. What was that experience like for you being directed by Ingmar Bergman? And what are your memories of Bergman? I have a lot of memories of him and, you know, he, so he, he took me in under his wings and yeah, it was, um, we had a, we had a brawl when we, when we were shooting Pan Alexander and uh, I thought I would be fired and uh, we had a little quarrel about a scene. I, I wasn't in many scenes. You have to see the six hour movie to see me for two minutes here and there, but we had a little quarrel uh, about a, direction he gave to me and I said no I don't like it I want to do do it the other way and he yelled at, yelled at me and I said it's better to do it this way listen to my version <laughs> and then he took minutes walking around and he came and he patted my head and said we'll do it your way that sounds great and I think that sort of <laughs> what broke the camel's back on us because I, I saw myself going back to the northern country and continue working in the in the post office, or I would continue working with Bergman. And we went on to have a great relationship for many many years up to his death. And would you say that first experience as a youth has led you to be inspired by Bergman creatively in your life? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, I mean, he he sort of confirmed me. It's like being a young painter, you know, and ending up in the same room as Picasso and Picasso moves over to your canvas and says, that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Keep on working, keep on working and you'll, you'll make it one day. So he, he more or less confirmed my ideas because I did a lot of directing on stage in the beginning, but acting became sort of, I don't know, some actors fell out and I had to replace them on stage. So I fell into acting. I, I always wanted to be a director. 
but I haven't directed for many years now, for 20 years. So, but I'm happy as an actor too. Yeah. And what can you say about what's coming up in the next Constantine two, and what you'll be up to as Lucifer? <laughs> I uh, I hope uh, my idea is to create a great character that we can call God, and he's exactly the same, but he's dressed in a black, beautiful um, suit. It will look exactly, but just the suit is different. So maybe there's a thin line between God and the devil and Lucifer. But they are writing as we speak, and I, I don't know if they're going to leave the Lucifer out or God out, but that is the concept for the moment, as I know. Mm. But you never know. It's Hollywood. It takes sometimes. It's been taking 10 years now to come up with a solution. Uh, and yeah. it might take five more years, and we're <laughs> all too old to <laughs> <Right>. do a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> and people are expecting it's been a cult movie, and people are expecting something of a sequel, and it might just fall flat. You never know. Mm. Never know. Hollywood is weird. And it takes a lot of, lot of, lot of guts and time. And what do you mean by Holly Weird? Because it's, um, you have a great idea for a, for a sequel, and it's been taking like 10 years now, and finally they give a thumbs up, and it's going to take five more years. Mm. Because if, if you have to do a sequel, it's like The Godfather, you do it right away. And the problem with The Godfather 3 is they waited too long. So they lost the momentum, and I think with Constantine too, it's, you know, the momentum. Matrix, to talk about Keanu, Matrix, you know, the new Matrix, it's also lost the momentum for the two first ones, or the three first ones. So you got to strike while the iron is hot. It's an uh, old Viking thing. Yeah. It's an old Viking thing because you have it in your blood a couple of years later, but then 10, 15 years later, you don't have it in your blood anymore. You have to reignite the flame, and it's hard. It's hard. And how do you switch creatively from action characters you play to your inhibited, sensitive male in food and romance? Uh, I think you know. I'm, I I don't understand the uh, the I don't know the the draw I have on certain directors and producers by me being a mean-looking, you know, <laughs> scary guy because I consider myself privately to be very like a hermit i'm 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 a religious man my whole life and i try to be a humble human being doing what's best for the human beings and trying to be you know just just be myself and two feet on the ground i grew up you know in a very simple setting in a small village and I still have my two feet on the ground. I, I don't want to continue. I don't want to be part of the red carpet. I don't want to be part of all the glam and glitz. And and I just feel strange sometimes when when they cast me all the time as the bad guy. Mm. It's fun to do bad guys because on, on stage you always want to do the dark characters in Shakespeare or whatever playwright. But but I don't know what it is. Maybe I can just become what they want. And I don't mind doing a baddie, but it becomes a little bit tedious now because if they need an Eastern European baddie, they come to me first and I turn everybody down. Mm. Unless it's Spielberg or Tarantino or somebody up there, then I would say, okay. Mm. But Eastern Europeans is over for me now, unless... It's a really good movie, and it's a good cast, and it's a good director, and I think it will entertain. Then I can do it. But I turn down so many offers. Mm. I say, there's, there's unemployed Eastern European actors in this town. Take them instead. And what can you say, or what have you heard, about what's going on in Sweden right now with the war conflict and the economic crisis? I do not have a lot of contact with Sweden, but it seems like everything is normal, and it's typically on Sweden to put their head in the in the sand. But I think I think the entire European Union, I feel ashamed of being a European. Mm. I think the EU is a bunch of cowards. Just it's a mercantile enterprise, and as long as the money comes into the right pocket, they're they're okay with the war. 
when the wall came tumbling down and Russia became closer to Europe, and most of the Russian friends I had said that those were the golden days in the 80s and the early 90s. We could travel to Europe and Europeans could travel here freely. Mm. Now it's all a lockdown again, and we're supposed to become a big empire. It's the old English formula. Yeah. And any last word about food and romance? I, I just think it's uh, a daring, daring script to set up with, first of all. And I haven't really seen the movie. I've never seen a movie of my own. Oh. Because you, hate, <laughs> you hate to look at yourself. You don't watch your, You don't watch or want to listen to yourself. Nobody wants to do that. I don't know any actor or actress who sits through a movie and watch themselves. You only see the mistakes. But I think the movie is daring because it's three women in their 60s seeing this as an opportunity to fulfill their lives and dreams they've had all their lives. At least, and they know, you're living on borrowed time. And you're getting older, the skeleton is breaking down, everything is breaking down. If you're lucky, you have 20 more years. And during those 20 more years, you want to, you know, fulfill your dreams while you were put here on earth and yeah. while you grew up with all these dreams, you never fulfilled. And I think for me, it's a very spiritual message that, like for me, it's never too late. It's never too late to form a rock group. It's never. Mm. It's only the prejudice from others maybe that holds you back. But if you want to start a rock band, you can do it even when you're 72. Who cares? It's your dreams, and you've got to nourish your dreams. Yeah. That's, a simple, that's the simple message. It's nothing deeper than that, but that's deep enough for me because that's what I try to say. I try to inspire people not to give up on their dreams. You have to follow that voice and the light within yourself, and that's what the movie is about. Okay, thank you, Peter Stormar, for calling in. Yes, thank you, Frederick. Bye-bye. And Food and Romance is out now in release. And now on Arts Express. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And the women you will wow. If you can't be a ham and do Hamlet, they will not give a damn or a damlet. Just recite an occasional sonnet, and your lap will have honey upon it. When your baby is pleading for pleasure, let us sample your measure for measure. Ooh. Brush up your Shakespeare. Hey, this is Jack Shalom, and don't touch that dial. That song was Brush Up Your Shakespeare by Cole Porter from Kiss Me Kate. And the late, great Simon Locally on these airwaves used to begin his segments on Shakespeare with that tune because he felt that Shakespeare had a lot to say to us today, no matter who we were, even if we hated Shakespeare in school or never read or saw any of his plays, but were curious. Well, at Arts Express, we continue that legacy of talking about the awesomeness and political smarts of Shakespeare. And so today, we're inaugurating a new Arts Express series that we'll call Shakespeare Without Tears, Shakespeare for the 21st Century. So without much more ado about nothing, here's the first piece in our new series of Shakespeare Without Tears, which I'll call Hamlet and the All-Seeing Surveillance State. So let's begin. Well, now... The basic plot of Hamlet is you've got this young, smart-as-a-whip Danish prince who's away at college, but he's called back from his studies abroad. Okay, why? There's been a tragedy in this warlike country of Denmark. His father, the king, has been murdered, probably by his father's brother. And what's worse, this murdering uncle, Claudius, has married the king's widow, Hamlet's beloved mother who is seemingly oblivious to the crime. So it's an incestuous mess. And now this murdering Uncle Claudius is the new king. Now, the problem is that Hamlet's only proof of his uncle's villainy is a vision from the ghost 
of his father. Or is it? So it turns out it's Hamlet's job to revenge his father's murder, a task that is harder than it seems in a state where everyone, but everyone, is spying on everyone else and the data is all faulty. Disinformation is everywhere. The National Security Administration could have taken a lesson from Claudius's Denmark. You know, if you really want to know what a Shakespeare play is really about, it's always useful to just look at the opening lines of the play. And Shakespeare often gives the game away there. Now in Hamlet, it's one of the great opening scenes in the theater. So just imagine there's a dark stage and the sounds of war are in the far distant. Up on a high battlement where the wind is blowing, we see through the fog two men keeping guard, each unaware of each other. Then, all of a sudden, Who's there? Nay, answer me. Stand and unfold yourself. And there you are. That's the whole play in a nutshell. Who's there? Nay, answer me. Stand and unfold yourself. Who's there? Because like the countries we inhabit, Denmark is a place where no one is sure who's there and who's who and who is watching whom, who the enemy is. We always have to watch our backs and up and down too. The surveillance state is active everywhere. But even more deep is that reply, stand and unfold yourself. Because Shakespeare doesn't just want to know who each person is. He wants them to unfold themselves, to reveal their inner natures. Now, this is probably for the first time on the English stage. The subject is not only about our outer selves and actions, but our inner selves as well. Can we know who we are? Can we understand ourselves? And how might that happen? But first, people have to stop surveilling us. So Hamlet comes back to Denmark, right? And the evil King Claudius launches a kind of COINTELPRO operation against him. He sends two old college buddies of Hamlet to cozy up to him, to spy on him undercover, to sound him out, to find out what Hamlet actually knows about the murder. But Hamlet is hip to him. It's going to take more than two snitches to get him to give away his plans. So after some clumsy questioning by one of the snitches, Hamlet makes utter fools of them. Of all things, he pulls out a flute from his pocket and pushes it into one of the snitch's hands and urges them to play it. And the, the, well, the, the snitch protests he cannot. I have not the skill. And Hamlet replies, Why look you now? How unworthy a thing you make of me. You would play upon me. You would seem to know my stops. You would pluck out the heart of my mystery. You would sound me from my lowest note to the top of my compass. And there is much music, excellent voice in this little organ. Yet cannot you make it speak? Splud! Do you think I'm easier to be played on than a pipe? Call me what instrument you will, though you can fret me, you cannot play upon me. But that is only one aspect of the surveillance. The king's counselor Polonius is also stalking Hamlet, hiding behind the curtains when Hamlet thinks he's having an intimate, secret conversation with his love Ophelia. Polonius even hides in Hamlet's mother the queen's bedroom to overhear Hamlet upbraiding his mother. There's no sacred place here, free from oversight or eavesdropping. No wonder Hamlet says, Denmark's a prison. In a world where nothing is private, where the state dominates through surveillance of action 
and recording of even the most private, intimate conversations, the notion of privacy disappears. You see, to the state, the dangerous one is the one who tries to keep to him or herself to have private thoughts. Now, I've said this before on this show, but it's worth repeating. In Glenn Greenwald's book, No Place to Hide, concerning the revelations by Edward Snowden of the ongoing illegal mass warrantless surveillance by the American government, he makes a point that is so often overlooked. It is not possible for human beings to grow and develop normally in a society where there is no privacy. Privacy is a necessary condition for being able to try out different versions of ourselves, to fail and to try again, to both invent and to find out just who we are, to keep sane, really. But Denmark is a prison. So what does Hamlet do? He has an idea. He feigns madness as protection to save his true self from scrutiny. Now, I remember decades ago, they used to say if you were walking down the streets of New York City alone and you felt you were being stalked, the best thing to do was to just start talking to yourself so that people would think you were crazy and leave you alone. Of course, that doesn't work anymore because now if you see someone apparently talking to themselves on the street, you don't think of them as crazy. You just figure they're talking on their cell phones. So, oh, a cell phone, let's steal that. <laughs> so, such is life. But I digress. So Hamlet puts on what he calls an antic disposition. In other words, he's going to pretend to be crazy so that no one will take him too seriously. But Claudius is a very shrewd politician and doesn't fall for that. Indeed, Hamlet's apparent madness raises Claudius's alarm bells even further. And Claudius insists that madness and great ones must not unwatched go. He's ready to send Hamlet packing on a lethal voyage out of Denmark. But Hamlet wants to get Claudius to confess to his crimes, and he cooks up an amazing plan. Hamlet asks of all things his traveling actor friends to put on a play that duplicates the circumstances of the king's murder, and he makes sure that Claudius and his mother and the rest of the court are in attendance. He's hoping that Claudius will give himself away by his reaction to seeing himself on stage as a murderer. Well, it's interesting because we had no idea up to now that Hamlet was friendly with actors. But now that he has to act as a madman himself, he gives the traveling actors some of the best acting advice ever given. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action, with this special observance, that you o'erstep not the modesty of nature. For anything so or done is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both at the first and now, was and is to hold, as twere, the mirror up to nature. So the actor somehow tries to hold the mirror up to nature, that is, to tell the truth. A constant question for those who watch Hamlet and those who play Hamlet is this. Is Hamlet just feigning madness, or has he really gone mad? And the answer, I think, is both. He's pretending to be mad, but he also has been driven mad by this surveillance society. Madness acts as a protective shell, but a protective shell can be one's own prison, too. Hamlet says, Oh, God, I could be bounded in a nutshell, and count myself king of infinite space, were it not that I have bad dreams. Yes, Denmark is a prison. It's a prison because there's nowhere to hide. You're constantly being defined by others, being told who you are, who you must be, what you must do. 
what you must say, what you mustn't say, or you'll be canceled. Is it any surprise that Hamlet becomes an actor? Maybe not. What are human beings that they can act? For century actors were reviled and cursed. They classified with beggars, thieves, and prostitutes. They were shapeshifters, untrustworthy, not what they seemed. And you know, you still get this now. People write actors nasty letters to soap opera villains, not understanding that actors play a part. An actor seems to have no center. The actor is subversive of the whole notion of a fixed identity, subversive of the notion of control or hierarchy. Hamlet refuses to be what they expect him to be. In a surveillance state, like the ones we in Hamlet live in, I often wonder whether art can be revolutionary, can be an act of resistance. And I guess I take a small comfort in remembering that every government in the world throughout history has sought to control its art and artists. We don't always know what kind of art will be effective or not, but it may work in ways that we don't even fully understand. The actor on the stage, whether playing Hamlet or the clown, is always the promise that each of us contains multitudes and has the capacity to transform ourselves, redefine ourselves, and therefore redefine society. Hamlet staked everything on his performance to rattle Claudius's conscience. He knew what he was talking about when he said, the play's the thing. This is Jack Shalom, and you've been listening to our first installment of Shakespeare Without Tears for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Rush off your Shakespeare, and they'll all cow, cow, forsooth, and they'll all cow, cow, think style, and they'll all cow, cow, we trial, and they'll all cow. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.